We are in a series called Law and Grace, as Peyton was mentioning earlier. Our intent in this series is to help us see the storyline of the Bible, which will ultimately help us to read our Bible. So that's a big focus for us in this series, just wanting to help us be able to read our Bibles in a better way. So when we think of these two topics, law and grace, I think it's easy for us to be drawn to grace and to dismiss law. It's natural for us to be enticed by God's favor and his kindness. There's not a lot of people also who get stoked about rules. But what's really interesting is we live in a way that's oftentimes opposed to these realities that I just described. If Jesus were to walk into this room right now and begin to wash your feet, or if I would come out and start washing your feet, many or most of us would probably feel uncomfortable. We'd likely respond similar to Jesus' friend Peter when he learned Jesus was about to wash his feet. He boldly stated, You shall never wash my feet. So there's this aspect of grace, though we're drawn to it, it also discomforts us in certain ways. It makes us blush to feel self-conscious because we don't really think we're so bad that we need Jesus to wash us. Maybe we can do up to a certain extent, but then Jesus can do the rest. So it's almost as though it's a team effort. We do it up uh, a certain extent, further than maybe what we, we should, and, and then Jesus comes in and he kind of saves the day in a sense. And I think it is in this way that grace can become offensive to us. And so there are times when we'll almost push grace away. Conversely, our aversion to rules gets obscured as we feel the need to justify God's kindness to us. Peter didn't want a free gift from Jesus. Likewise, we want to turn grace into a transaction. So we act rightly, we follow the rules, and God then gives us nice things. We want to earn what Jesus gives to us. In this, we tend to press mute on the second part of Deuteronomy 28 that we've talked about here in this series. If you disobey you will be cursed. We kind of ignore that part. Disobedience isn't merely a missing out on God's kindness. Disobedience just doesn't just end up in kind of this neutral reality. Disobedience is an invitation of a curse. And so what's proved out is our only hope is grace, is Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus and grace has always been God's plan. Galatians 3.8 speaks about a man named Abraham and how he was given the gospel beforehand. So the gospel, we use this word a lot here, right? It's Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. The gospel is good news. That's, that's literally what gospel means, is good news. But it's in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection where grace becomes clearly apparent. And today we're going to be in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and we're going to be in chapter 22. And we're going to read a story about a man named Abraham here and his son Isaac that teaches us some vital aspects about law 
and grace. So let me read this verse or this story for us, and then we'll dig into it. Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father! And Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Let's pray. God, help us to be able to work through this story, one that many of us probably have avoided or don't like to think about. I pray that you would make these themes of law and grace evident. Help me to be able to flesh these things out. I pray that our hearts would be receptive to seeing the beauty of grace in and through this story. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay. So this story is probably repulsive to us. Or at minimum, it likely raises some questions. So I want to begin this morning by making a few comments around this story that hopefully will allow us to be able to be instructed by it. So a few comments, just general comments here. First of all, some of you maybe wonder, like, would God ever ask me to kill my child? If this story is in here, and this is really clear, that he's asking Abraham to do this, would God ever ask me to do that? And the answer is unequivocally, no. This is a very unique situation. God is communicating some very unique things in this story. And some of these unique aspects I'm going to draw out for us as we go through this sermon. But I want to be really clear here that 
God is not going to ask anybody to offer their child as a sacrifice in a literal way. Secondly, when you read this story, at least for me, it almost feels like it lacks emotion. Like it's just this recounting of facts, and it's cold and it's hard. It feels like a stale recounting of the story. And this story, for me it does, and I hope it does for you, it it probably creates some emotion, maybe a lot of emotion for you. And we might wonder, like, where is the outrage? What is actually going on here in this story? Who Who would allow this? Who would even think of this? And I would encourage you to feel the emotions as we read this. If you feel repulsion, feel that. Be repulsed by what's going on here. You don't have to tamp those feelings down. This is unbelievably intense and gut-wrenching. It is. Third, I think it's easy for us to read this and picture Isaac as a little boy. Maybe like this four-year-old boy or something that, that's going with his dad. A child who's really dependent on his parents. And there's a few contextual factors around this story that suggest there was a significant amount of time that transpired between Isaac's birth and this trip. Also, Abraham would have been over 100 years old. And so it's likely he's helping his father more than his father is helping him. So numerous commentators have concluded that it's much more likely that Isaac was a young man rather than a young boy. Okay, and so plenty of commentators have estimated he was 18 to 20 years old when this is going on. So I'm going to come back to this and and touch on this after a bit. I just got to look at this, you guys, because I I lost everything on my screen. So I don't know if, Sherry, you want to come and look at this. Um, Let me just... Give me a second here. Try and pull this up. I'm glad you guys aren't seeing what I'm seeing. Okay. All right. I think we're good. Okay. So with that said, let's, let's then jump into this here. So verse 1 begins with an assertion that God is testing Abraham. So how we can read this this commentary about a test can speak volumes about how we view God. So when a child takes a test in school, the intent is to prove what the child knows, right? So what this really boils down to is whether testing is viewed as a positive exercise or a negative exercise. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that we be made aware what is known or unknown in a given circumstance? Is it good for us to know what we grasp and what we don't grasp. For Abraham, this is a test of his faith, specific to his son Isaac. Now, it's imperative for us to understand the context behind this test. In Jewish culture, having a son was of massive significance for them, for the continuation of their line and their lineage. Abraham and his wife went many years without a son. Okay, he was 75 years of age when Abraham was given a promise from God that indicated that he 
and his lineage would be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. So it was implied in this promise that he would be given a son at 75. That doesn't seem real likely, does it? But get this, Abraham is going to wait another 25 years before that son actually comes. Can you imagine what Abraham was thinking during those 25 years? Promise given, nothing. I mean, I would think he probably just forgot about it in many respects. And the way that his wife responded when he was 99 years old and this this promise was reiterated, she just laughed at God. It would indicate that she probably also felt this whole reality like that's not going to happen. But now his son was born. At 100 years of age, that promise has been fulfilled. The blessing is taking place. Abraham has his beloved son. But now God is asking him to offer up his son. So I think it's easy to read this and just be like, ah, Abraham doesn't think it's a big deal. Right? Like he's just doing it. But I, I don't want us to get this picture that Abraham is just like this malevolent father. Like he doesn't care about what's going on. This would have been gut-wrenching. Anything that you would feel right now here today, he would feel a hundred times more, a million times more than what we would feel here today. This is a test, a test that will reveal what Abraham holds dear, a test of faith, who or what he trusts in will be made apparent. How easy would it be for Abraham at this point in time to question God? To question God's sanity or his own sanity. Am I actually hearing this? To question whether God actually remembered his promise to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And we've maybe felt this way ourselves when we've encountered certain circumstances in our own lives hard circumstances. We wonder, does God care? Does he know what he's doing? But I think one of the things that comes through this story is that when we're tested with hard things, that there can actually be a gift of grace in the midst of it. If our faith is placed in a person or a thing, or a circumstance that is unwise, it is a gift to be made aware of this. If we are wrong, it is good to be made aware of our own error. If we are not believing in God, it is good for us to be made aware that we are not believing in God. Now, this is going to hit hard. It'll hit at our pride. It's not going to feel good, but it is good. It won't feel good, but it is good. It is loving of God to expose our error, our unbelief. And so, in a sense, one thing we get as we look at this story is that tests are good. 
especially when those tests come from God, especially when those tests and what they reveal cause us to tweak something or massively overhaul something in our own hearts and minds. Okay, so there's a specific aspect to the test that really hints at the idea of law. So Abraham is instructed to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Now at this point in history, God has not given Israel the Ten Commandments. Okay, that has not happened. Nor the other 612 commands that God gave to Israel either. None of that had been given to Israel. Included in this would be the specific laws concerning burnt offerings. So if you go back, third book of the Bible, Leviticus, okay? I'm sure most people don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus, all right? Leviticus chapter 1. That first chapter is all about laws regarding burnt offerings. How it is that Israel is supposed to offer their burnt offerings to God. Ultimately, those burnt offerings were made to atone for one's sins. Okay, that's why burnt offerings were made, was to atone for somebody's sins. Okay, so that this can begin to build a little bit of a picture for us of what's going on in this story. Now, if you go 19 chapters forward in Leviticus, you go to Leviticus 20, you'll read there about God's hatred considering child sacrifice. The penalty for someone sacrificing their child was for them to be stoned to death. So clearly, God hates the idea of children being sacrificed. So this is just some helpful context for us as we're exploring what's going on in this story. But the fact the terminology burnt offering is used in Genesis 22 is hinting at something that's coming. It's hinting at a forthcoming law. And we get a hint here of where the law leads. The law, as we've talked about numerous times in this series, the law leads to death. Which is why Paul calls the law the ministry of death. And also why he says the ministry, or the, the letter kills the ministry of death, which is carved in letters on stone. Okay, so the law that required burnt offerings leads to death. I've tried to establish this over and over. The law leads to death, okay? And here we're seeing a picture of this through burnt offerings. Now, Though this story is a whisper of the foreboding reality of the law, it has a climactic shout telling of the coming of grace. And this is where we can really be helped in terms of our reading of the Bible. We have to understand this isn't just some weird, random, terrifying story. God's not just trying to scare people into obedience. We have to read what's going on in this story in light of the whole of the Bible. This story is one part of this massive story that is the Bible. The Bible is interconnected. All of it is interconnected. It all weaves together in a masterful way. And I hope that I can help us see that explicitly in this story. So let's see how grace is shouted through this story. As we read this story, we need to see how it points forward. Isaac isn't just any son. He's prefiguring Jesus. 
He's helping move the storyline of the Bible along towards Jesus. In lesser ways, we can also see how Abraham is a depiction of God and how the servants in this story are a picture of us. Ultimately, though, we have to see how Isaac is a son, an only son, in the image of Jesus that moves this story forward, that ultimately is going to climax at Jesus on the cross. So let's, let's do this. We have to wonder what was going through the mind of Abraham to even consider what he was being told when he was being told to sacrifice his son. I, I just, I can't imagine the, what he would have felt in that moment. But in the New Testament book of Hebrews, we get a bit of an answer. Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered in that moment that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So though it wasn't explicit in the initial reading of Genesis 22, we later come to learn that there was a belief in Abraham, and this is so vital, right? Everything comes back to a belief, okay? But there was a belief in Abraham regarding Isaac's resurrection, that this is something that God could do, would do, and that's the only reason he would entertain doing what he was being asked to do. We also hear a hint of this in Abraham's instructions to the servants who came with him and Isaac. He said to them, I and the young man will go over there and worship and come again to you. Okay, so he knows what he's being asked to do here, right? But he's also convinced that he and his son are going to return to those servants. Combined with this, we read that on the day of Isaac's and Jesus' resurrection, that they both rose early on that day. So Mark 16, 9 talks about the day of Jesus' resurrection. And it says, now when Jesus rose early, Genesis 22, so they rose early in the morning. Okay? And it's also interesting that the day of resurrection is explicitly noted as the third day in the recounting of both stories. Luke 24, right? Jesus is going to rise, and he did rise on the third day. Genesis 22, 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, okay? So what I want to do here is I'm trying to paint a picture for you of all these different ways in which these stories are interconnected, how there is this foreshadowing that's going on all the way back in Genesis 22. The instruction to Abraham was, in verse 2, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. Now, if you've ever heard of John 3.16, you might know that this sounds an awful lot like that. Where God gave his only son, Jesus, his beloved son, as a sin offering. 
And to make this even more interesting is that the land of Moriah would later be in the same region as where Jerusalem is located, which is where Jesus would die sacrificially as an offering for the sins of the world. In verse 6, we read of the wood being laid on Isaac. The imagery is of Isaac toting the wood on his back, which will be used to make the fire for the offering. And as we read about Jesus' journey to his own death, we read in John 19, So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross. Jesus also carried the wood that would be used in his sacrifice on his own back as he led up to his death as well. In both stories, the lead up to the supposed sacrificial death of Isaac and Jesus both involved the usage of a donkey. Again in verse 9, we read about Isaac being laid on the wood where the sacrifice was to be made. So, this has, so, so Isaac is being laid down, right, on this wood. And this has to bring about thoughts of Jesus being laid upon the cross with his arms and his feet bound to the cross with nails like Isaac was bound up. Isaac was on the precipice of being pierced with his father's knife. Jesus was pierced. In this case, we can see how what Jesus suffered and accomplished supersedes or is better than Isaac. Now, I don't want to downplay the likely emotional scars Isaac uh, probably carried through his life, right? I don't know how someone could go through something like that and not be affected by it. But we have to see that what Jesus accomplished is definitively better. Okay? So this is the gospel beforehand. The gospel that we see realized fully in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is being prefigured. This story is being told all the way back in Genesis 22. As Isaac noticed there was no lamb present for a sacrifice to be made, he exclaimed to his dad, he said, My father! And this points forward to Jesus, the one who was introduced as he came on the scene for his ministry. Jesus was introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as he hangs on the cross, he exclaims, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in all of this, Jesus was sacrificed. He went all the way. He went beyond where Isaac had to go. And Jesus did it like Isaac, willingly. He went with his father. And God never stopped the death of Jesus until forgiveness of sins was made possible. He didn't stop it until death was defeated. He didn't stop it until evil was overcome. Whereas with Isaac, God stopped the hand of Abraham. He saw the faith of Abraham in the midst of that test. 
Now, as we're reading this story, we can't think for a moment that this was for God's awareness. This wasn't so God could actually know what was in Abraham's heart. God wasn't lacking knowledge. This test was for Abraham, for his faith to be exercised in God, for his faith to be shown, for his roots to go down deeper into God's promises. That This whole scenario wasn't about God sturdying himself, knowing that Abraham would trust in him. This was about God sturdying Abraham through this test. But God stopped the hand of Abraham from killing his son and then provided the offering. So this is an an example of substitution. The ram dies instead of Isaac, much like Jesus dies for us. And note also here how God is the one who provides the lamb. Right? It's not as though Isaac comes off the altar and then God tells them, go find a sacrifice. Go hunt. Go kill it. No, God provided it completely. And this is what happens as Jesus is provided to us for our sins. God does it. He does everything. We are called to believe in him. God is the one, though, who provides for us. And Abraham memorialized that place and he called that mountain the Lord will provide. And that speaks over us today. The Lord will provide. Today, we look at Golgotha, which is the hill or the mount where Jesus died. And we see how God has provided. We see the epitome of grace. Jesus The beloved Son, the only one able to provide a worthy or a sufficient sacrifice, hanging on a wooden cross, taking the knife, taking God's wrath for you and me. This is God's cosmic statement about us to Satan, saying, do not lay your hand on them. Though we will suffer in this world, the cross is the unending statement that God will provide. That Jesus is enough. And like Abraham, we must simply trust in God's promises. So we we get to the end of our sermons here at Center Church, right? And we do what's called gospel application. Okay? Not application, gospel application. And the difference is we're not sending you out of here, all right, go be a good Christian. Here are all the good things you can do to merit something from God. That's not what we do. We remind ourselves of God's promises, of who he is, of what he has done for us so that we would believe in him. And as we believe in him, trusting he will change us. All those good things that Christians supposedly do, that will naturally come out of us as we believe the gospel. But our focus is on our roots going down deep into Jesus, not on the doing of all the good things. So I have one point of gospel application for us this morning. Gospel belief removes the curse 
from us. Okay, and this is going back to what Peyton read earlier this morning. When we disobey God's law, we are cursed. This is true for every single one of us. When we are born, we are born cursed, broken by sin. This was true for Abraham. As it was a belief in God's promises that removed the curse from him. So I want you guys to listen. I'm going to read an extended section, about eight verses here from Galatians 3. And you might be, this is the end of the sermon, you're tired, okay? Hang with me, right? Try and listen closely to these verses. Can you advance that? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Gentiles are just non-Jewish people, that he would, God would make right non-Jewish people by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you, Abraham, all the nations shall be blessed. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to us, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there is this massive distinction being given to us here in Galatians 3 that speaks explicitly about what's going on in the book of Genesis. It is not about works of the law. It is not about following rules. It is about believing in the one who obeyed God's law perfectly all the way to the point of death of dying for us. So when we read this, when we read Genesis 22, it should beckon some questions for ourselves. Do we have faith in God? Do we have faith in God like Abraham had faith in God to raise his son from the dead? Do you believe with everything in you, that God is faithful, that he is good, that he has overcome evil and sin and death. When our faith is tested, and it will be, and it is shown lacking, or we see our faith being put in other things, the call for us is to remind ourselves of Jesus, to remind ourselves of his massive love for us. I heard someone say 
recently about this story in Genesis 22. The point of this story is not give up everything for God, but God gave up everything for you. I think it's easy to read Genesis 22 and hear about this test of faith and be like, oh man, I've got to do this and I've got to stop doing this thing and I've got to give up this thing and all these things that I've got to give up for God. And this story is trying to tell us, look at what God gave up for you. Look at His love for you. When we read that story, I hope that you feel some repulsion in reading about child sacrifice. The repulsion you may feel about this whole scenario with Abraham and Isaac, understand this is what God went through to save you. His son died in the most horrible of ways. He gave up everything for you, for me, undeserving sinners who did nothing to merit it. Understand the depth of God's love for you. It is no small thing. It is weighty. It is beautiful. It is glorious. Romans 8.32 captures this really well. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is what he's done. This is what he will do. The curse has been taken from you onto Jesus as you believe the gospel. So believe the gospel. Again, today and tomorrow when you wake up, believe it again. Over and over. This is what God's love looks like for you.